you've got a Bible, I want you to turn with me, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 1. We are here celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I would like to say from the get-go that being a Christian is believing in something that is radical and supernatural. It is also something that is life-altering. Christianity is not about you coming to a church service and being a good person. The claims of Christianity are radical. They are really radical because we are saying that God became a man. He entered into time as a man. That's Christmas. That's what we celebrate there. And the intention of Him becoming a man was to take the sin of the world and be punished for it and then be raised from the dead. That's Easter. We are saying that God took on flesh, lived among us, preached the kingdom of God is at hand, and then was crucified for our sin. And this morning we want to just explore that. But I want to say from the outset that, that being a Christian has nothing to do with you being a good person or coming to church. Even though being a good person coming to church are good things. We would like for you to do this. Instead, what I want to do is I want to look at the wonder that Paul, who wrote most of the epistles, that he felt about the resurrection. And part of the reason that I want to look at Paul is that he was an ardent, committed hater of Christianity. He was on his way to arrest more Christians for believing in the resurrection. He was on his way to arrest them when he was arrested by Jesus on the road. If you, if you remember the story of Paul, he was on the way to Damascus and he was going to throw more Christians in prison, separate families. He consented several times to people being stoned to death. He was zealous to see these idiots that believed in a resurrection and a fake Messiah. He wanted them put down. He was a part of the original cancel culture. Okay, He wanted it canceled. He wanted it ended. He wanted it stopped. And he was very passionate about it. And Jesus shows up on his way to Damascus and says, why are you persecuting me? Knocks him off of his horse, blinds him for three days, and turns Paul into the most powerful preacher of the gospel, I think, that ever lived. So I want to look at that guy. I want to look at his reaction to the resurrection. When he's, I told you to go to Ephesians. Look at verse 15 with me. This is a prayer that Paul is praying for the church at Ephesus. He says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Now stop. This is a weird prayer. He is asking that your eyes in your heart be opened. And he's praying this for Christians, right? We're writing a letter to Christians. So he's asking that Christians who already believe, he wants something to happen 
even though they already believe. Here's, here's the specifics. Number one, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. Number two, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? And number three, what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead? The third thing Paul prays for, he says, I want your eyes opened so you can see the hope to which you've been called the inheritance that God has, which is you in the saints. And then I also want you to see this immeasurably great power that is working towards you because you believe. And this power is the same power that God worked and exerted mightily when He rose Jesus from the dead. The power that rose Jesus from the dead is working towards you, church at Ephesus and Huntington, West Virginia. That power that raised Him from the dead is at work. It's in you. And you already believe in it. But I want you to see it. I want you to know it. I want you to have your eyes opened and embrace more deeply what God has done. This this tells me, my conclusion is, that just because you are a Christian does not mean that you get it immediately. How many of you have been a Christian for a long time? Is anybody ever embarrassed about your early years of being a Christian? Like It's like remembering with cute fondness uh, what it was like when you first rode a bike or what it, you thought you knew some things. and You grow in your faith, right? We, we grow, we, we learn, we go deeper with God. That is the idea. And Paul is praying specifically that you would see and know the power of God that was exerted in Christ when He was raised from the dead. That's the first thing I want us to see this morning. The second thing, go with me, just go right, turn the page a couple times to Philippians chapter 3. So Paul thinks it's important for us to see the power of the resurrection. And here he gets more personal. He wrote this letter in prison about the same time he wrote the one to Ephesus. It's AD 62-ish. So he's writing to another group and he has something similar to say to them. We're going to look at verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Everything I count, loss. I count it as secondary. I count it as not worth holding on to. Instead, I would rather know Jesus. Just ask yourself, do you feel this way? Do you you feel this way about God at all? Or is He just something that you know you should be doing? Right? I mean, everybody says that, right? I should go to church. I should read my Bible. It's like, that's the culture talking to you. That's the culture that we live in in America that exerts a pressure that says, you should be a good person and you should go to church. And I want to tell you this morning that that is meaningless. Totally and utterly. What is meaningful is knowing Jesus and His reality. 
And this is where Paul, who once was persecuting these Christians, is now saying, this is the way I view Jesus. All Everything I had, I count as lost, that I would know him. And then he says, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. If you have a really good translation, it will say dung, just to get the point across of what he's trying to say. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. This is what he wants. He doesn't want a righteousness that he earned. You know what it means to try to earn righteousness? Well, I'm a good person. I am a good person doing good things, and there's no way that God is going to send good people to hell. This is the way people think. This is not the way the Bible thinks. This is not the way the Bible talks. Paul has told us earlier in this chapter that he was perfect in keeping the law. And all of that was worthless and meaningless. Because your goodness, when it's stacked up against God's goodness, what's the comparison? If I took a Bic lighter and I could get close enough to the sun and I lit it, would it hurt your eyes? Or would the sun just overwhelm your little Bic lighter? Would you even know that the Bic lighter existed? The Bic lighter would actually melt in your hand, and so would you. You would melt. That is what we're trying to do when we say, look at my little flame of goodness. It is utterly meaningless in comparison to the goodness that God demands and requires. The goodness that God requires for heaven is perfection. And Paul, recognizing that, says, I don't want a righteousness of my own. A righteousness of my own will send me to hell. I need a different righteousness that comes from God, and that righteousness only comes through faith. That is what he's saying. But that's not all that he says. Look at verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Paul wants to know intimately and deeply Jesus, and he wants to know the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The reason this is, is powerful is because Paul is telling us that he's not going to be good enough to get to heaven. He needs God's righteousness to get there. And on the way, he wants to know Jesus deeply. And he wants to know Him because the power of the resurrection has done something to him. I was told all my life, that Christianity was not about feelings. Raise your hand if you've heard that. It's not about feelings. Raise them up real good. I want to see. Okay, it's a lot of you. Christianity is not about feelings. And I agree. What, what people, I think, mean by that is if you wake up tomorrow morning and don't feel like a Christian, that, that doesn't mean that you're not. M most mornings before coffee 
a lot of us are on our way to hell, right? I mean, we're not really Christian, or some of us are that way. Um, or you're really cranky halfway through the day. Sometimes after lunch at work, I would love to, like the 2 o'clock hour, I totally, I wish we were all going to Mexico and had siestas. They have got the right idea. You take a nap, because I just want to pick up my monitor and my computer monitor and throw it through the window. Anybody else feel like that? If I based my Christianity on 2 p.m. on Thursday afternoon, I would not be going to heaven. So in that sense, Christianity and being a Christian is not about feelings. However, when I read the Bible, I read and hear passions and depths of emotion. And I hear in Paul a longing, a desire to know Jesus. And then I look at my life and I, I look as a pastor and just all of us trying to live for Christ and realize that there has got to be some help from God if we're going to have those passions. And I, and I am exhorting this morning that the power of the resurrection that he specifically mentions here that he wants to know more about, that it's that power that gives and causes passions of the heart towards God. I, listen, when I was 19, that is when I really got serious about God, but I had grown up in church, and I had grown up knowing all these truthful things and could quote facts. If, I don't know if Jennifer's in here right now or not, but Jennifer, uh, when we were five, we were in the same church, and she thought I was annoying because I knew all the answers to the Bible questions. Like, what, I, every time my hand was going up, I was that kid that was like, I'm going to beat everybody to the punch. I'm going to prove to everybody that I know the answers. And I did. And I remember my future wife, she told me later, gosh, I, you were just so annoying, Steve. It's just so insufferable. So knowing things is, is not the key, and trying to be good is not the key. I had no connection in my heart and soul towards Christ because I didn't really know yet the power of His resurrection that, that did something in me. And when I look at this and I hear Paul saying, I want to know His resurrection and I want to share in His sufferings. Does anybody pray this way? Jesus, thank You for this day. May I please share in Your sufferings today. Has anybody prayed this way? That's the way He's praying. What causes your heart to pray that way? I want to know Jesus so deeply and intimately that I want to share in the same kind of sufferings and persecutions that Jesus shared in. Because I want to know my Savior. That doesn't happen because out of willpower, you gin up enough want to. I want to be this way and therefore I will be. That, just, that works as well as your diet works on January 2nd. Okay? Where's Mark? Mark? Okay, Mark will tell you. The gym is full all through January. About halfway through February, Mark has got total access to any equipment in the gym he wants because all the willpower people are where? Netflix. That's where. And Cheetos. With me. That's what I'm doing. Willpower is not going to cut it because you don't have the supernatural capacity 
to do what is necessary to have a passion for God. God gives a passion for God by what He did in the resurrection. Sometimes you hear sermons that spark that alive. Sometimes you hear songs that spark that alive. Sometimes you hear testimonies that cause you to go, wow. That's how God, He uses the Spirit of God. That's how He works in our hearts. Paul wanted to know Jesus, the power of His resurrection. He prayed in Ephesus that they would see the power of His resurrection. You don't have to turn there, but in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19, he tells us that if the resurrection is not true, we are the most miserable people that have ever lived. He does not say Christianity is a good idea because it's a good moral system and the world will be a better place if everybody would love their neighbor and turn the other cheek like Jesus said to do. That's what Christianity is about. Hogwash. That is an, that is an after effect of what God does in the hearts of people causes us to live that way. But you can't live that way to get to a changed heart. You have to get a changed heart to live that way. And that is the power of the resurrection. Paul says if there is no resurrection, we're miserable people. We're out here trying to live a certain way and abstain from certain things, and we are in misery if there's no resurrection from the dead. We are still in our sin. And then he says, but of course Christ has risen from the dead, and our sins are forgiven. So let's come in for a landing this morning. I want you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter... Actually, no. Yes, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's take a step back from the resurrection. And let's talk about what caused the resurrection. What caused the resurrection, obviously, was the power of God, but has anybody really... If I ask Arwen, she's seven years old, she lives in a house of a pastor, all she goes to a Christian school, she hears it all the time. If you go up in that room and ask her, why did Jesus die on the cross? She will say, automatically, he died for our sins. Right? Have you ever really, really thought about this? In the same way that Paul says, I want you to know the power of his resurrection. The reason the resurrection is so powerful is because of what Christ accomplished on our behalf. 2 Corinthians 5.21 It's one of the most powerful verses in Scripture. For our sake, so we're talking about us, for our sake, He made Him, so He, who is He? The Father made Him who is Him, the Son. Alright? For our sake, He, the Father, made Him, Jesus the Son, to be sin. Just let that sink in. Easter Sunday. He made Him, Jesus Christ, to be sin. 
who knew no sin, so that in Him, Jesus the Son, we might become the righteousness of God. Why did Jesus do what He did? How did Jesus do what He did? This verse tells me that because we're helpless for our sake, God the Father made Jesus the Son sin. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus sweat great drops of blood and said, Father, if this cup can pass from me, please, nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. You all remember the scene. Where is the agony coming? What cup is he afraid to drink? I think, I think that the cup is both the sin of mankind and the wrath of God on sin. What does God do with sin? He punishes it. What did He demonstrate in the Old Testament? What were all those sacrifices for? To demonstrate that a life has to be given in exchange for your offense to God. So they had all this gigantic system in Levitical priesthood and all of it was a giant neon arrow pointing towards Jesus. All of it was pointing towards sin has to be atoned for. It has to be covered. It has to be wiped out. But the blood of bulls and goats and animals does not satisfy the wrath of God that He's just. He's a just judge. He's pouring out wrath on sin. He's going to punish it and punish the people who commit the sin so He's got to have a sacrifice. And he demonstrated that all throughout the Old Covenant until we get to Jesus who becomes the final sacrifice. And the way that he becomes the sacrifice is the sin of the world is placed, imputed, put on, however you want to visualize it, Jesus became sin. When Jesus gave an illustration to Nicodemus who came to him at night, one of the Pharisees, and wanted to know uh, and says, you're from God, we know that you are. And, and Jesus says that as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness by Moses, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Gee whiz, Jesus, I'm not real sure that comparing yourself to a serpent is the greatest thing that you could do here. If you're trying to convince a Pharisee, maybe you should wax philosophical about some minor point of the law that will impress him. That is not what he does. He says in the same way that Moses lifts up the serpent, uh, and that was when all the fiery serpents were attacking them in Israel, and Moses sticks a serpent up on a pole, a brass serpent. Anybody who looked at the serpent was healed. You can go back and read that in the Old Testament. And Jesus compares himself to the serpent. Why? Because he is going to become the curse he is going to become the sinfulness of us, of you, of all the sin of mankind. How does God forgive the most horrible sins that have been committed? Because Jesus became that sin on the cross and experienced the wrath of God for it. We are celebrating the resurrection because before the resurrection was the sacrifice for us where the Son of God, for our sake, was made to be sin that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. 
Jesus takes the sin of the world and experiences the wrath of God for the sin. But it would not be just for Jesus to stay in the grave because He was innocent. He was there as a substitute. He was there in your place. I remember when I was a kid that my mom sent us to our room and told us to quit talking. So mom, if you're watching this, this is my memory of the events. And unfortunately, she doesn't have a microphone to also share. But I remember being in my bedroom. You'll understand why I said that when I get through with the story. I remember being in my bedroom, and I remember talking, and my mother specifically said, no talking. And it was nap time. And there were five kids, uh, and mom had five kids in seven years, so you can imagine how exciting the house was uh, at this time. I was like eight years old. I'm talking, and I shouldn't be talking. And my mother thinks that it's my brother Tim that is talking. Now, I don't remember what all transpired leading up to this. I don't have a clear memory <laughs> of this. All I know is my mother was already angry, and that's why we were there in the bedroom. So now I have exacerbated the moment by talking, and fortunately for me, she thinks it's Tim. So my brother Tim gets jerked. This is the 80s. He gets jerked up and uh, receives the due penalty for his sinfulness, actually my sinfulness, um, and he receives what we would say in flight company, uh, a, a beating, uh, uh, a, a lashing, a whipping. What, what are the right words? He, he got in a lot of trouble, and it was a lot of crying and squawking, uh, and a lot of tears were shed. And I remember sitting there as the guilty party paralyzed and not able to say a word because I was watching my brother receive my punishment. And then she stormed out of the room. My brother is laying there crying. And I just figured that he had done enough wrong in his life that he deserved anyway. So justice was satisfied in that moment. So maybe this is not the best illustration. However, my brother unwillingly acted as a substitute for my sin. Do you see what I'm saying? He received a punishment that I justly deserved. Because there was supposed to be no talking. We had probably already, who knows what we had done before that. We deserved whatever it was we got. Uh, so, Jesus though, unlike, unlike me and my brother, Jesus, perfect, sinless, God in the flesh. What did He do when He went to the cross? The people were committing sin against Him, and He's saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus, because God so loved the world, He gave and delivered up His Son, that whoever will believe in Him will not perish and have everlasting life. Why? Where does the everlasting life come from? Because the sin was placed on Christ and the justice of God and the wrath of God was placed on Christ. He dies under that penalty. So all penalties have been satisfied. There are no more penalties. 
Therefore, anybody who accepts Christ's sacrifice gets out of the penalty because the penalty's already been done. Justice is going to happen for every sin you've committed. It's either going to happen on Christ when you receive Him in faith, or it's going to happen when you go to hell because you rejected Christ. There, there are no in-between states. There are no gray areas. It's Jesus and He took your punishment, or it's you and you will eternally bear that punishment. Why would you bear your own punishment if the Son of God already bore it? He who knew no sin was made to be sin that you might become the righteousness of God in Him, which is what Paul was saying, I need, I want that righteousness. The way that we receive it is to say, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that He died, like Arwen would say, for my sin and that He was raised from the dead. Now, how does that simple little, if I'm allowed to say formula, cause you to become supernatural in your heart, resurrection longing like Paul, desiring more of God, living for God, shedding away sinful lifestyles, and repenting and following Him? How does that happen? It, it doesn't happen because of you. It happens because of the power of His resurrection enters your heart and changes you. Let me finish with this. I started to say that when I was 19, I wasn't as when I really got serious, but I had grown up in church. And the change that really happened to me was when God just opened my eyes, and I don't know how else to say it. It was just one second it was one way, and the next second it was not. I'd been a Christian my entire life. I'd been to church my entire life. I was not really going to church at that time because it was boring. And it was boring because I was disconnected. But when I was standing there that day to get my mom off of my back, I came to church. God will use all kinds of stuff. To get my mother off of my back, I came to church to see this new youth pastor. And instead, what I saw was a bunch of kids that used to be throwing spitwads in church truly, lifting their hands and worshiping without any emotion at all. I just remember looking at the wall and it hit me. This is all real. The resurrection is real. The love of God is real. Samson and Delilah, that really happened. Noah built a boat. That, that happened. God created the heavens and the earth. This really happened. Jesus walked on water. This happened. He died for this. It was like, all the stories I knew took on a whole new life. And you could not keep me away from church or God or the Bible. Christianity and serving God is not some, oh, I'm going to have to do the right thing. No! That is not what God has in a walk with Him. The resurrection of Christ changes your heart so that you see Him as more beautiful and precious than anything else. So He becomes your treasure and your joy. 
Truly. For real. Not making it up. People are willing to die not for a cause they don't believe in, but because something has transformed their heart. God can transform your life today through the power of His resurrection. Can't promise you that you're going to get everything you want. I am certainly not promising health and wealth. You may have cancer and die. You may have a car wreck and die. You may lose your job and go bankrupt. And that is why Paul says things like, I've learned in whatever state I'm in to be content because of what God has done in my heart. Not because of what's happening out here in my circumstances. Easter is the celebration of the resurrection from the dead. And that resurrection is what changes your life. That's what I'm proclaiming this morning to you. Hear it and embrace it and know Him this morning. And if you've been a Christian your whole life and you've just kind of been the Christian with your hands in your pockets and kind of downcast and glum and you know you believe but you kind of just like, oh, say, God, let me see like you prayed in Ephesus. Let me see the reality of your resurrection. Let me know you in spirit and in truth. Let me grow. I don't want to be just a plain hands in my pockets, glum Christian. I want to know you. Praise the Lord. All right. This is what we're going to do. We're going to receive communion. I want everybody to stand up with me. And if you didn't get the communion element, it is out there in the hallway. If you need to get that, you can. I'll ask everybody to close your eyes with me if you would. The resurrection is just the most powerful, precious thing to spend time thinking about. That God loved us for our sake became sin so we could receive His righteousness. If you're standing here today and you don't know Him, you are not going to be able to do enough good things to get His attention. Your good things just don't measure up. Instead, you have to believe on Him and in Him. 
And I want to ask why you're standing right here. If there is anybody that doesn't know him, I want you right now to just call out on his name and say, Lord, I want to know you. I believe in you. I trust in you. I believe this is true. I believe you died. You're not going to believe that because I preached a great sermon. You're only going to believe that because the power of the Holy Spirit opened your eyes to see that truth. You're seeing that this morning. Call on His name. The Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you're a Christian and you've just been existing, call on His name this morning. Say, Lord, I'm struggling. I don't know you very well or I know you less than I should. There's zero desire. I'm way more interested in work or sports or my relationships or whatever. God, help me to see you as the supreme treasure. Just call on his name this morning. Because what this communion meal represents is the body of Christ that was broken for us to make us whole. And the blood of Christ that was shed for us to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Because he became sin, his blood became the cleansing factor for all sinners to be washed clean. So, Father, we thank you this morning for the precious gift of your Son. We thank you for your resurrection. We thank you for your power. God, I pray that you would do your work this morning in the hearts of your people. God, I pray that we would know you, that we would trust you. Lord, I pray that there are people here that don't know you that are coming to know you this morning. God, we give you all glory for it and all honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Let's take this together. Now, Lord, unto you who are able to do exceedingly, abundantly above all that we ask or imagine according to the power that works in us, that resurrection power. Lord, do you be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. Amen. Church, happy Easter. Thank you for being here. You are officially dismissed. There is the offering bucket, or you can give online. That's something I didn't say earlier. Thank you.